are back again one more time for movie time. How are you all doing? I hope that you've had a fabulous week. And joining us, of course, is my co-host, Kente. Hello, Kente. Hey, how you doing? Um, uh, man, it's been a great day, a great Veterans Day, and I'm so happy to be here with you. And, of course, we want people to participate, and the way they can do so is come to our website, IndyRadio.org, I-N-D-Y, Radio.org. Another way they can participate is they can call in at 323-522-4601. Once again, that number is 323-522-4601. And also, this is our second week in a row in which we will be simulcasting video and audio, and you can do that by going to uh, the website blab.com and uh, I'm sorry blab uh, and you can just look up uh, Indie Showcase and uh, you're good to go and uh, also it's like happy remembrance day to all of the people it's like we all remember to remember I hope that we all remembered and tonight we have our most amazing guest Mr. Adam Cranston how are you doing hey I'm good guys how's it going Happy Veterans Day to you, Adam, too. how you doing? Okay, can you hear me? Uh-oh. Yes. So how are you doing, Adam? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Could you hear you guys hear me? cooperating oh, yeah. with you? Yeah, we hear you fine. Oh, what city are you guys in? I'm in Los Angeles. Cool. Oh, yeah, me too. It's great out here. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. What's there not to like? Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, we're expecting a tornado here uh, you? soon, or tornado-like weather. What's, where Where are you? So, Adam, can you tell us a little bit more about you? She's in Kansas City. <laughs> uh, she's in Kansas City, okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so what can I tell you? So I'm a native of Los Angeles. I started at uh, Creative Artists Agency in their mailroom uh, some time ago now. I was 26 years old when I started in the mailroom. And... Uh, at the time, the agency was, I think, about 50 people on a half a floor in Century City. Uh, and then when I left, about 20 years later, it was uh, several thousand people on 14 mm -hmm. floors in Century City, many offices around the world. So I was a motion picture packaging agent at Creative Artists Agency, which I'll tell you about that in a few minutes. Um, and then when I left, I just continued to do what I had been doing there, which was putting together packaging and financing for feature films. Uh, for some of my movies, but a lot of times for, for other people's films. And now what I do, um, sort of the nine to five, is I work with a company, a group called Creative Future. And Creative Future is a nonprofit coalition that was started by the SAG-AFTRA and the DGA and CBS and IATSE and the six major studios working on their anti-online piracy efforts, which is a full-time job. Oh, wow. Um, what does that all in, entail? Uh, is it, you know, about prosecution? Is it about education? Uh, yeah, it's not about education. It's not about prosecution at all. It's interesting because a lot of these, um, uh, a lot of these illegal websites where people download movies, they're either in the cloud or in their other countries. So the United States, we have no legislation over them, so we can't actually go after them. That's not really the goal anyway. The goal is really about educating people. Um, and it's going to take a generation, by the way. But that it's stealing. It is stealing. It's so different than walking into a Target and stealing something. People make movies, and it costs a lot of money to make movies, and, and they aren't doing it as a charity. They, they want to get paid. They want to make their money back. Mm. And so it's, it's you know, people you know, they think, oh, you know, uh, uh, the studios don't need it. Well, the studios may be able to absorb it, by the way. But all these independent companies can't. It's very hard for independent companies who make one movie every few years and they mortgage their house to, and put money on their credit cards to get a film made. It's, it's, not, it's not just there for the taking, for people to see it for free. Yeah. And um, do you think it's just a, a, an issue with society now? Because I would think like years ago that uh, people would be less inclined to do stuff like that. But it seems like now it just people don't understand that it is stealing. Well, it's interesting. I think what happens is... Um, We've raised a generation of people who've grown up on the internet feeling like everything is free, like everything should be free. Sorry about the background noise if you guys hear it. But, uh, and so it's about changing thoughts, just like we change people's ideas with recycling, or in California now, saving water because of the drought, or wearing your seatbelt, or not smoking. 
you know, it takes time. But those are all things that society has changed. And I think things aren't all for free on the internet. And, and movies are a business. Do, do you think... And, you know, and I'll tell you what's really interesting, by the way. Mm-hmm. I go and speak at film schools often. And I say to the film students, how many people... I say, no one's in trouble. No one's in trouble. How many people here have downloaded a movie for free? And inevitably, 100% of them raise their hand. And I look at them and say, guys, you're in film school. You see how much time and effort and money goes into make your, your little student short film. How are you going to feel when you finally graduate and you want to go make a movie and people are stealing your movie? Right. And your uncle put money in and that, your uncle's not getting his money back because somebody thinks, oh, it should be free. Right. And all of a sudden, that's their sort of aha moment. They're like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I see that. <laughs> so, um, so um, what do you think is the, uh, the biggest surprise you've had in this position, you know, since you've been doing this position, as far as the way that attitudes are and the way that, you know, the whole educating the uh, community has worked. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the last part you said? Uh, you know, what, what was the big surprise about uh, your job that you've taken so far since you've been on it? Well, that's interesting. Uh, there's probably a lot of them. I think the biggest surprise, uh, I think the biggest surprise, quite frankly, is in people's attitudes when they feel it's okay. And I think that I, I, I'm always, you know, maybe I just take the moral high ground, but when people consistently steal movies and they think it's okay, they don't think there's an issue with it. And when you try to tell them, it, it's, it's, in no uncertain terms, it's stealing. It's no different. If you have a cold, you need some Robitussin, you don't, and you can't afford it, you don't just walk into Target and steal it. Like, I get some people can't afford movies. Well, you know what? Go to the library. Right. Well, Rachel comes out. For the price of a cup of coffee, a fancy latte drink at Starbucks, you could have Netflix for a month. Right. No, but we want to see the movie right when it comes out. Well, you know what? I like an iPhone 6 when it comes out, but maybe I have to wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's just about people's impatience and, and people's sense of, um, you know, wanting things when they want it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I get you want to see uh, uh, Mission Impossible right when it comes out, but you can't afford it, then for the price of a cup of coffee, you can get Netflix and, and wait a month. So I think that's my biggest surprise, is I feel like people have a sense of entitlement, and, uh, and that surprises me. Mm. Okay, so we always like to start from the beginning. So uh, where are you from? Or you said you're from Los Angeles, but uh, tell us what it was like growing up in Los Angeles, and how did you, be, how did you realize that you wanted to be in the entertainment industry? Well, nobody in my family is in the film business, and I went to Loyola Marymount University, and I, what I always want to do is direct television commercials. And what a great business that would be. You, you, you uh, tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, mm-hmm. and you do it in 30 seconds, and you get paid nicely, and you only have to work with the crew for a week. And I thought, what a, what a fantastic thing, and you're selling a product. But... Uh, what happened was I just started working in the mailroom at an agency just as it was a job. And one thing leads to another. Then you, you, you start doing well and you sign up, you graduate from mailroom to an assistant and then from assistant to um, an agent. And you start signing some clients and you start making some money and then you sign some more clients. And So I had a very nice run when I was there. From starting from nothing in the mailroom, I ended up representing uh, Michael Bay for... Oh, wow. 20 years. I represented Francis Coppola. I represented Jerry Bruckheimer. I represented Antoine Fuqua. Um, I represented National Geographic. Um, a lot of production companies. Uh, Mark Frost, who created Twin Peaks. So a lot of, I had a very, uh, Nick Pelleggi, who did you know, Casino and Goodfellas, the writer. Had a very nice run there for a long time. And, uh, you know, and you just, you know, all of a sudden you start signing clients and you start, the next thing you know, you turn around, it's 20 years later. Do do being around that bunch of talent, uh, how does that reflect on you? Just as as someone who's talented in their own right, uh, just having that kind of um, energy around you, how does that reflect on you in the way you do your job? Just being around that talent. Well, I think what I've always felt was um, you work with people that are experts at what they do, and by being around them and spending time with them, you become an expert at. Or you, you become very educated on the things that they know a lot about. So by default, you've learned a lot. You know, Bernard Rose was a client, and he did a movie called Immortal Beloved, mm-hmm. and it was about Beethoven's life. And I thought, oh, you know, I know Beethoven, you know, I know, I know a little. 
But then he would do research, and he'd start telling me, and he'd start talking to me as he was writing the scripts. And, and, and by default, I learned a lot about Beethoven. And so I thought that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so what I liked about being around people that are really, really smart and really educated in certain areas that they are good at is that you learn from them. And that, to me, was fantastic. I mean, that, was, that was a highlight for me. You know, uh, you worked with Mark Farras, who, uh, you know, Twin Peaks is one of my favorite shows of he's, all he's time. He's doing a reboot of it, by the way. They're, he and David are doing a, a, another one now. Yeah, you know, I've always thought that uh, they were such a great team because, you know, uh, David Lynch is so brilliant and talented. And, you know, and I mean this in a good way. Sometimes he's, like, on Mars. And I always all thought right. that Mark Frost, like, brought him back to Earth a little bit so that it was, like, this great mesh. So, like, Twin Peaks, you know, it had... It had David Lynch's uh, creativity and, you know, and all of that. But then Mark Frost kind of gave it that, you know, that grounded, you know, uh, element. Well, of I, think that, I think they worked really well. I think, it was a, I think you're right, by the way. I think it was a really good combination. This first season of Twin Peaks was fantastic. The second season, I think it lost a lot. It's, you know, they brought in characters and they forgot about the characters. You'd see them again, like, you know, five, six episodes later. So I think they got a, lost away a little in the second episode. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but I agree with you. I think that the... They, they they work well together. It's a good it's a good team. Yeah. Um, so uh, all right. So you worked at uh, CAA, and uh, you moved on. And uh, and what was that? What was that like to take the leap of leaving CAA and then you know getting into um, your own thing? Well, I'd worked there just under twenty years, and I started when I was twenty six, and. I, I was right, I think 18 years. I started, I, had to say, I started when I was 25 and I was there, I think, 18 years. And I just thought to myself, I don't want to be any place for 20 years. You know, I want some young agent to find projects for me. So it was sad when you leave because it's sort of like leaving the nest. Mm -hmm. you know, I was going to work for college for the first time. I mean, it's a little scary. It's a little sad. But I had a film financing company that I had started. Um, so I knew I wanted to leave. So I sort of laid the groundwork a little called Outlook Films. And that lasted for a few years, and it was fine. So I was going into something that I wanted to do. It didn't ultimately work out the way I wanted to, but it was fine. We, we had a good run there for a little while. Um, I think the thing that surprised me the most when I left, mm -hmm. well, this isn't your question, but I'm going to answer it anyway, uh -huh. is I, you work at a place for, for almost two decades, and you have lunch with people, and the lunch is canceled. You, you have to end up having lunch, and you go to kids' birthday parties, and you play tennis on the weekend, or jogging, whatever you do. And when I left, maybe, maybe out of the many, many hundreds of people that worked there that I was very close with, I heard from four or five. Mm -hmm. Four or five people called out of the hundreds that I dealt with every day. Wow. And that really surprised me. It, it, what it said to me is people in Hollywood are your friends when they need you, and as soon as you're gone, you're gone. Mm -hmm. But having said that, it also has short memories. So as soon as you have financing to finance another film or you're doing something that they perceive as being important, you know, they come back pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> that's funny. Too long. <laughs> Did you have people that tried to talk you out of it? Like, oh, don't, what, are you, what are you talking about? Why are you leaving? You know? uh, no, not really, because it ran its course. You know, 20 years a long time, it ran its course. And I still have a lot of friends that have worked there still. And it's, you know, I think what it is, when I was there was something big and something special and Michael Ovitz and Ron Meyer and Bill Haber ran it and uh, and it was something big part of a big machine now while it's a great company I think in large part it's a job mm -hmm. it's a job mm -hmm. where it wasn't before before it was something special now it's a job you know what I mean you know oh, the difference yeah. oh yeah for sure yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, as an as an uh, as an agent, uh, what would you think the the what was your best quality in dealing with your clients? Would you say that helped you dealt with them at the best level possible? I think my I think I think my best quality of dealing with my clients is the best quality that a lot of people have when they're successful at something and that's being a really good listener. You know, and also as an agent, so it's being a good listener, and it's being strong in your convictions of what you're saying and, and advising them and not feeling like it's okay if you don't know the answer. 
and you know I've always felt like if I don't know the answer I say I don't know you know let me let me get back to you but I think having a point of view is important and I think having your clients feel as if you're the only client they're the only client you have you know it's making them feel good and important and doing a good job for them um, I felt like I always had good taste in material so I felt like I could give a script to somebody and they and I know what they like Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't have to give ten scripts to a director to find one that they like. I'd give one or two, and they'd like, and they'd want to do both. I was, you know, I was lucky. Uh, so, Grayson, do we have you back, Grayson? Yes, I do. Okay, sorry. All right, sorry. That's okay. We were talking about her his time at CAA and being an agent. Yep. And also, what budget rates were you comfortable doing them, like working with different job firms? Uh, I couldn't hear what's some of the questions again. Sorry, uh, what kind of genres were you looking at working with? What kind of genres did I work in? Well, I think, uh, I mean, as if, if that's your question, what kind of genres did I work in? Um, you know, when you have clients in different areas, you have to work with all of them and the areas that they work in. So, Michael Bay would be big action movies, and Bill Condon, you know, was Gods and Monsters that I helped put together. You know, very, very different than, you know, a Bill Condon, Gods and Monsters film is very different than a Michael Bay film, or very different than Bernard Rose's uh, uh, um, Immortal Beloved but Beethoven movie, or Antoine Fuqua on Training Day. So I think a lot of the directors I had were action directors, um, you know, sort of high-octane action directors. So that makes it a little easier if you have a lot of people in one area, because then people send you scripts for your directors and one script might be right for five or six of them you know if you have one person does musicals and somebody else does a comedy and somebody else does action you're reading three different kinds of scripts for three different kinds of clients and that, that makes it a little harder does that help does that answer the question Grayson? <laughs> it's a little hard to hear you. Okay, what, what did she ask? I was saying, like, is there was, are there anything that you would want uh, that you wanted to avoid entirely, or ones that you were like, nope, we're just not tacking this project on? Well, okay. So if you have if you have a client and the client wants to do something, you kind of have to do it, you know, unless it's really a bad script. Like I said, it's not a good script. It's not going to happen. You know, we should move on and work on something else. Um, but if it's a good script, you know, I think it also depends on how it's going to be put together. If it's a studio movie, it doesn't really matter because the studios will make all kinds of films. If it's an independent movie, then you want to stay away from sports movies because they're, they're difficult. Some comedies don't travel well. What's funny in China, it's necessarily funny in Italy or, or France. Um, you know, action movies, horror genre movies, those things travel well, they work well. Which yeah. is a good segue into what kind of films are being made now and how hard or easy is it to put together financing for films now. Because can we go into that a little? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> because the there's basically studio movies, and then there's everything else, right? So studio will do their tentpole movies, their Transformers and Iron Man and Batman and Spider Man and mm-hmm. Harry Potter, and then everything else is. So it really does depend. Well, right. So if you're an independent producer, it's hard to get a sports movie made, and and some comedies are hard unless it's Will, Will Ferrell or, um, you know. Vince Vaughn or one of those guys because big generic comedies will travel but you know slapstick comedies may not so well so comedies are harder to put together and and uh and yeah. sports comedies are hard to put together they're harder to sell internationally well uh, which definitely makes uh, sense um so what kind of different forms of finance did you deal with can you tell us about some of those different forms of finance packages um, okay, well, let's look at it today. I think there's basically three ways to finance movies today. Mm-hmm. One is the studios. Great, one-stop shopping, easy. You have the opportunity to do that, do that. But since the studios are owned by very large companies now, unless you get the rights to the next Monopoly or Harry Potter or Barbie, uh-huh. or whatever it may be, or Twister, um, you're not gonna, it, it, it won't be in the studio business, by and large. So... How else do you finance movies? So one is the studios. Secondly is, if it's a low-budget movie, it's like uh, what I kind of call friends and family. 
you, you find somebody who has a uh, you know some family's got some cash but short of that really the only way to finance a movie is by selling off the international rights let's say for 60 percent of the budget shooting in a location a city or state or country that has some government subsidies and that would be probably another 20 percent of the budget like it's 80 percent of your budget and then you need to sell then you need that last 20 percent where's that last 20 percent come well it's going to come from a north american advance it's going to come from uh some unsold territories perhaps it's going to come from a company that lends money um you know money lending company it's going to come from some relative uh or you got to try to make the movie for less so those are basically the three ways to make films right now are a studio international sales and government subsidies or just some rich rich person or company I lose both of you guys. with dealing with the agencies versus now it's like at what point do you like to take on uh, projects in terms of also the uh, the different uh, like working with people it's like are you uh, do you enjoy coming in at the beginning of a project or when it's a little bit more meaty and established well okay three different for everybody for, for me I like to get involved as late in the process that I can I mean if you have a good script and a director attached and it just needs to be cast you know and i guess the end of the day the closer it is to a go movie the better right now i mean some people take pride in finding a book or a magazine article and developing it finding a writer uh, i come from an agent's standpoint so i want to you know agents basically are in the transaction business and i'm throwing a wide net here so you know take it all like you know i'm, I'm giving um nothing's an absolute but generally speaking I would say agents are in the transaction business they want to do a transaction get it off their desk and move on to the next one and yeah. that's sort of the world that I come from like managers will, will read your script three or four times and they'll meet a little more they'll do a little more hand-holding so I come from the agents point of view so I want to get involved at the latest point I can because it's just less work and somebody else has done all the heavy lifting so if I have that option that'd be great um, but I think generally, I generally I get involved. So that that would be my my goal. Right? But generally, I would say I get involved when there's a script, and people will send me a script and say, "Hey, Adam, you could you help me find a director and cast and, and the money?" I mean, realistically, that's when you end up getting involved. Yeah, that's uh, so at the at the back end that we're packaging is like it's at its final stages of coming in. I mean, I'd like to get involved in its final stages. But the reality is, you get involved at the script at the script level, and then you find a director, and then you find the cast, and you can't put together the financing until you have the cast, because you need to bring in a foreign sales agent, and that foreign sales agent needs something to sell other than the script. They need to know who's going to be in it. True. It's like they need to have as many of those elements as humanly possible. But right, which makes it difficult to, of a certain budget, it makes it difficult to get a movie financed unless you have the cast and you need some name recognition in your project to get it financed if it's not like a half a million dollar, a million dollar movie. And also in regards to uh, that, so it's like when working with it, it's like, do you feel that working with a combination of known and unknown talent can benefit or harm a project? Because are we still in a star-driven system, or are we starting to enter a new phase, like with the new markets and new genres, that are, uh, like new things that are coming up with the different distribution models? Is it now still only working with knowns or those combinations? I think if you're going to put financing together on a movie, it's hard to do it without some name actors. If somebody makes a film and it goes and sells in Sundance because it's a really good concept, then it doesn't matter. But if you want to bring in an international sales company to raise money to finance your film, you have to have uh, you have to have some names in it. But there's concept movies like I don't know, like take *Beasts Beasts uh, of No Nation*, the Netflix film. So it doesn't really have any names in it, but it's a but it's a good concept. It's a high you know it's not a high concept movie, but there's a there's a concept there, so it becomes a little less important. Mm -hmm. Which makes very, uh, which makes it uh, good sense. So, do you think though that having those unknown talents though does it hinder a project? 
Well, it doesn't hinder a project. Uh, it doesn't hinder a project. Well, again, I go back to what I said. There's studio movies and there's everything yeah. else, right? So if it's a studio movie without yes. anybody in it, yeah, it's. I think it's going to hinder it unless it's a high concept movie. You know, if it's Transformers, if it's Michael Bay's Transformers, and it's about the concept is the star, not the actors. Then maybe it doesn't make such a difference. If it's um, and if it's a low budget or if it's a movie that's going to get released on Netflix or yeah. or Amazon or Hulu, then maybe it doesn't matter so much either because people will find it and and there might be more inter interesting subject matters. Um, you know, uh -huh. but they're ten pole movies, so on those large movies, it absolutely cast matters. If somebody's making a you know low budget movie that's going to sell on Sundance or South by Southwest. Then no, I don't think it matters because they're just they're making the movie for a number of reasons and hopefully it finds a home. And it's hard to get actors, by the way. It's, you know, you're not gonna get name actors if you're making a little um, South by Southwest film. True. It's like a, unless it's a passion project of theirs. Uh, two different issues, though. Passion project. Yeah. It's gonna be a passion project, that, but that doesn't really yeah. have anything to do with, the, with getting actors. A, a lot of those ah. are passion projects. You know, somebody works on something for three, four, five years. So it's a, it's a passion project. Yep. And also, it's like with some financiers and distributors, like devaluing uh, things like social media uh, and other things. It's like uh, so. Then it's also how does all of that start playing then into the package and putting it all together? All of well, those elements. So a friend of mine produced this movie called the um, uh, the Wedding Ringer, mm -hmm. and, for, and for a lot of the extras. They specifically went and cast people with, with a lot of Twitter followers and Instagram followers because they knew that they would tweet out, um, and, you know, and, and promote the movie, which they did. By the way. So it's a very so it's a strategy and a really good one. They they hired a lot of the extra space on their Twitter followers. Wow. So I think the social media plays a lot into the marketing of the movie, especially uh, especially now. You know, I mean, people are watching less television. I don't know if people are watching less. They're watching actually more television, but less network television. Um, so, a lot of people hear about movies from social media. More than they have in the past. Yeah, it's like it is starting to become quite the trend to put things on social media. It's like with that, how would you how would you categorize the social media into positives for campaigns and negatives for campaigns? Well, I don't know that there are a lot of negatives. I don't. I, I can't really think of any negatives. I mean, I think it's only positive. I, I don't. Um, you know, the more people are out there hearing about it and talking about it, then they see trailer and they see commercial, and then there's word of mouth. I, I don't really see any downside to it. I think also with social media, you could target. You, you're not sending out quite a wide as wide as net. You could target your audiences more. You know, I want 18 to 34 year old girls who. Um, you know, live in this area or who, whatever. Just woke up with a boyfriend. <laughs> There's algorithms for everything. So, you, you you know, you put on a television commercial on a network for a movie, you're covering a lot of people that may not be your audience. Put out something on some social media and you're hitting your exact audience. I don't really, I can't really think of any downside, quite frankly. I mean, can you? I can't think of any downside. I mean, it, um, those things are really good for getting the word out and, and alerting the public to what you you have going on. So I think it's perfect. Yeah, it's that's what dream. I think. It's a wet it's dream good. for a, a lot of us who, who do these things, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good also. I don't see any downside. Just it's, it's, it, movies cost a lot of money. I, and there's a lot that I could do with six or eight or ten million dollars if I had it. Right? So think about that. Somebody's spending six, eight, ten million dollars on a movie. They want as many people to see it and hear about it as they possibly can. And, and that's not counting the money that people are going to spend putting the movie out and promoting it. You know, studio will spend 50, 60, 70, 80 million dollars on prints and ads, PNA. I mean, now it's mostly advertising because there's a DCP, so it's, you know, it's, it doesn't cost quite as much. Um, but it's, you know, they'll, they'll spend 80 million dollars marketing a big movie. You know, plus $150 million for the movie. Into $230 million. That's a lot of money. Which goes back to what I said earlier about people, oh, it's okay, I, I, I can steal it. I don't have to pay to watch it. It's terrible. It's a really disgusting practice. It's terrible. It's stealing. It's stealing however you cut it. It's stealing. There's no two. There's, people can make all the arguments in the world. If, if, 
if they if somebody wants you to watch it for free, they'll give it to you for free. And if they don't, you got to pay for it. Yeah. Got to pay for it. Yeah. You know, and you know, listen, you watch television, there's commercials. So it's just but you want to watch a movie, got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Or go to the library or or read a book, don't watch the movie. That's right. Also, what is your opinion on those proof of concept, uh, tra- uh, like little trailer ads to add towards the package stuff? It's like, uh, I do come across them often. Well, okay, so here's the thing with that. I think you have to be very careful with that. So if somebody's going to cut a trailer and it looks good, and great, it's, it's useful. Somebody showed me a trailer of a film that, that I'm involved with the other day, two days ago, and I thought the trailer, teaser, I'll say it's a teaser, looked really bad. <laughs> And I said to him, if you send this out with your script, it will be detrimental. Like, you'll, you'll never, he wants to direct a movie. No one will ever let you direct it if you show this. And he works very hard on it, but it's not good. So it's, it's a negative. You know, it's a negative. Um, you know, personally, I think a PowerPoint deck is, is totally fine. Because in the deck, you're also showing comps. You're showing comparisons to other movies. You have a director's statement in there, which the director can talk about the vision that he or she has for the film. It, it's got a short synopsis of it. You have pictures of actors that are appropriate for it. Uh, to me, that's, it's, it's more than good. And especially, unless someone's going to really make the teaser and make it look really good, then if it doesn't look really good, it's going to help sell your product, then it's going to be detrimental. Intricate in this day and age, you can do really good stuff with that. PowerPoint. No, you kind of didn't at all. PowerPoints, uh, or you, she was saying, yeah. that PowerPoints are very, uh, you know, it can do a lot of those things. I think they're really useful. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. too, also too, at, at this stage of your career, uh, do you still have the same enjoyment that you did in the beginning, or, or is it just kind of old hat? You know, it's just yeah, it's a really good question. <laughs> uh, it's a good question. You know, I think, I'll tell you what, I still like it, but it's frustrating because it's harder to get movies made now than it used to be, even though with more outlets. There's more outlets, it's Hulu, and YouTube, and Amazon, and, and, and Netflix. There's more places other than studios, but it's hard to get movies made. And I think what happens as you get older, you're in the business a long time, what's gone is your, um, oh, uh, like your ignorance is bliss feeling. You know, when you're when you're when you don't know better, you go and you eh, we'll make it work. It's okay. We'll figure out a way. When you know better, you're like, well, how are we going to make it work? And you think it through, and you realize there's a lot more stumbling blocks. And so I think you, at least I find this with me. I can't speak for everybody, but I get in my own way sometimes because I know the reality, and I know, oh, you'll never get this made at that budget with these people. It's not worth trying. When I was younger, I'd say, oh, let's try. You never know. And sometimes that would work, by the way. <laughs> sometimes it's like the ignorance is bliss. But now I feel like I stop myself sometimes because I know too much. Uh, you know, I won't take chances as much as I used to. It becomes less of, a, of a, something that surprises you, or do you still feel like you get surprises within this? Oh, I totally get surprises. You know, I totally get surprises. But also, the other thing is, well, I'll tell you what's interesting. I'll read a script, and then whether I work on it or not work on it, but if I don't work on it, and then I see the movie two or three years later in the movie theater, and I think to myself, wow, I, I, I didn't see that. Like, I would have never envisioned like this. this. That's much better than I would have thought when I had read it. Like, somebody did a really good job. They really thought it through. I'll give you an old but really good example. It's an old example. Is There was a writer of mine named Jonathan Lawton, and he wrote a script called 300, and I had read it, and he wanted to make it into like this little movie, like dark noir movie. It takes place like in an alley in a small crappy hotel, like on Skin Row. And I sold it. He was blind, but I sold it to Disney. And Donald DeLine was the studio executive at the time. He's now since become a very successful producer. And he had a vision for it. And I didn't see it. I didn't see it at all. I, I, I had no idea. And he rewrote the script and re-envisioned it, and the movie became Pretty Woman. And I saw it in the movie theater, or you know, it's screening, whatever it was, and I looked at it and I thought, oh my god, I, like, like, hats off to this guy. He did a great, great job. I would have never envisioned it the way he did. And it became a very successful movie. So there are surprises all the time. 
And then you also have to think, you know, in every movie there's, what, 300 people that work on a film, and those 300 people are experts in their area. There's an expert at writing, there's an expert at visual effects, and an expert at editor, and they, and they all work very hard. You know, they're all really smart people. So it's not surprising that one guy, Adam Krenzer, doesn't have the vision of all 300. You know? <laughs> I wish I did, but I'm not that smart. <laughs> Like what your view is on those sales agents regarding the now that filmmakers can you know market their own materials as well and it's more of a collaborative effort so how do you feel that the role of the sales agent and the packaging agent has actually expanded or has it or is it still the same well it's interesting it's a good it's a good timely question because the american film market the afm just took place just ended today in santa monica and goes on for 10 days or so and it's a market where there are international sales agents from this country and from others that are selling films and buyers come there to buy films. And um, I think it's very, in some years, like this year is a little slower, and, but last year was a very good year for films. Um, and it's an opportunity for distributors in various countries to buy movies for their, for their countries. I think, they, I think it's important. Um, uh, the hard thing with sales agents is that they know what they can sell and they require certain kinds of movies. There are a lot of sales agents who can find different people for different kinds of films, but I think the role of sales agents is very important now. Specifically the way, as I described earlier, the way films are financed. Because most movies are financed independently, which means you bring in a sales agent to sell off the international rights, and you're using that money to finance your movie. That coupled with some government subsidies of uh, what city or state or country you're shooting in. So I think the roles of sales agents are very pivotal and important right now. Are we also getting into the yeah. place of multi-sales agents uh, or agents uh, or it's like because now with co-productions being such a popular uh, th uh, thing of marrying different countries for different reasons, it's like, then are we going to be starting to get into multiple sales agents as well? Okay, well, you, know, you cut out about half of it, I'm sorry. So, to ask for more time about the sales agents. I was saying that because of our now co-productions and so many right. countries getting involved with one film, it's like, are we going to start having to get multiple sales agents? Like, from different are we going to start multiple, multiple what? Sales agents. Oh, no, you're not going to get multiple sales agents, but I, I do think it's interesting, and I understand it. But you look at a film now, and how many producerial credits are there on a film? 15, 20, 30 in some cases? I, you see movies with 30 producer credits. Producer, executive producer, co-producer, associate producer, co-associate producer. And why is that? Because there's so many companies and so many people that get involved to get any money finance. And so, and it just shows you how hard it is. It's the, the days one producer or two producers financing a movie uh, on independent movies are long gone. You know, if you're Jerry Bruckheimer or you're Neil Moritz or Mark Gordon, you, know, you might be the only producer. But not even because you'll have a line producer or UPM or, you know, somebody bought you the material. But, you know, when I see 20 or 5 or 30 producer credits, it just, all that does is tell me how many people were involved to get a movie made. How many different financiers and sales companies and uh, and and line producers and real producers? So no, you're not getting more than one sales company because you, you got one script and one director and, and whatever cast, and you, you have that package. And that package is just what they're selling. But there are a lot of people that go into the mix to try to get one movie made. It, you know, it's that expression. It, it takes a village, and it does. I think that's important for people who are listening to know. Is that don't think you could do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. I've been doing this for 25 years. Yeah. No, it takes it takes a village. Take all the help you can get. Who cares if somebody else gets credit? It's a credit. Who cares if somebody's going to make like, a little money in the in the budget? You know, and the chances are you're not going to see a back end anyway. But don't worry about the back end. In the rare case that it's really really successful, great, you're sharing the back end a little. So you got your movie made. But 99.9% .9 of the time, you'll never see a back end. So don't worry about what you're giving up on the back end. Oh, wow. And by the way, especially with other distribution outlets, which you asked about, 
you, you sell something to, to Netflix, Netflix wants worldwide rights. You know, something with Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, there, there's no back end. So if you're not selling it to a studio or roadside attractions or some other uh, distributor, it's going to go to one of those places and there is no back end. Wow. So don't worry about giving it away. Get your movie made. If people are making movies to make money, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Yeah, that's true. Um, one, one, one more thing, too, i like to ask. Um, you know, what do you do just for fun? Just, you know, when you're not making a movie, you know, you just want to chill and hang out. I mean, what, do, you, do you have opportunities to, uh, to kick yeah, it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, because you know what happens? As busy as you are, you either create yourself to be really busy, like some people do, or, or you don't have to. You know, with, with emails, which is, you know, when I was working at CA, it, it was so loud. You walk down the hall, you hear people talking and yelling in every office. It was like this energy, this great energy, which is fantastic. Because um, you just you have noise coming out of every office. Now you're at an agency and it's silent. It's just quiet because everyone's just sending emails. Right? And people are talking on the phone, but, you know, it's just, it's quieter. So I could do business at 11 o'clock at night. You know, you're sending emails and somebody in China, they'll get it when they wake up. So you don't, you can do it so you work around the clock and you're busy 24-7, or you can do it when you want and stuff still gets done. So, um, well, what happens is you submit a script to a director and you wait three weeks for them to respond. And three weeks later, you follow up, they're like, oh, yeah, I, uh, you resend it, well, I never got it in my, in my email. But well, you know they got it. They just then they're lazy to look at their you know trash to go find it by the email. So um, you know, and then you're sitting around for three weeks. No, that's why producers have a lot of projects they work on because you just can't work on one thing. So yeah, I mean they're full days for sure, and they're nights because nights are you're out often, uh, and there's dinners and this whole business about relationships. So you want to maintain those relationships, want to be out a lot. Uh, for me, like I work out, I go to the gym early in the morning. Uh, you know, I have a motorcycle, so on the weekends when it's nice out, I take my motorcycle out. Uh, I have a 17-year-old, so I you know, take him on uh, weekends away often. Um, you know, so whether you know, those are my things. You know, or a bike ride along the beach. But there's, you know, I have my friends. You know, listen, as you get older, you know, what, what do you do for your free time? You go, you go out to dinner with your friends and their, their spouses. <laughs> that becomes, that's the thing. It's so funny, uh, I'm so not cool anymore. Like <laughs> I used to oh, do all oh, kind of crazy stuff. Same, by the way, not anymore. You know, it's funny. I used to watch um, the uh, New Year's at us, uh, you know, um, in New York. And when I was younger, I would be like, "Oh man, I want to be there for that." Now, when I see That's it on TV, you don't be. yeah, like I see it on TV. All I see is clutter and a lot of people, and I don't <laughs> want to be there. So, <laughs> the same thing. I look at that New York. I think of those people. What in the world are those people thinking? It's 30 degrees outside, they're crammed in there like a bunch of sardines. Like, who? I'd rather be any place but there. Right. I, I don't think yeah, you can. Yeah. And by the way, like, I'm just as happy laying in bed watching House of Cards as I am, like, you know, anything else. So, yeah, I, I'm not cool anymore either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm cool. I just don't like that. Like, I'm happy not being out. Now, um, now we talked about the streaming um, platforms. You know, there's so many great ones. There's uh, Netflix. There's Hulu, there's Amazon Prime. I believe Google is going to get real heavy into that market as well. Uh, what do you uh, see uh, that as far as the, the future? It seems like Netflix is taking the HBO model of getting really talented people and just letting them do what they do to create content. Uh, what do you think about that going uh, well, in the future? Um, well, I think a few things. I think that um, Netflix is becoming a very big buyer and they're buying content. Uh, I know that they went to... Bob Zemeckis and Jack Grafke, and they wanted to make finance the wire. But they didn't end up doing it with Netflix uh, because there was no back end. Net- again, Netflix wants to buy worldwide rights. But as I said, you know, there's the studios and there's everybody else. So I think that they're great outlets. I think it's fantastic that, that there's, there's other places. You know, as the studios are, are now all owned for the most part, they're very large companies. They need to hit home runs every time. They're not interested in doubles or singles. You know, they need to make a billion dollars a film with merchandising and theatrical and international and television. They need to make a billion dollars. They're not interested in March of the Penguins or Philomena. 
you know, or Women in Gold, which I happen to like this movie. I like all of them, by the way. But that's just not their business. They're in the Harry Potter, Transformers, you know, uh, Star Wars business. So when places like Amazon and, and, and Netflix come along, it's great because they're, it's another distribution outlet, which we didn't have a little while ago. And again, I, and I, when I teach, and I teach a lot of places, make movies, especially as young filmmakers, because you want to get your vision across, you want to hone on your skills, you have a message that you want to tell, if it's a documentary, if it's a piece of no nation, yeah. but not because you think you're going to make a movie and it's going to be the next Titanic, you're going to make a boatload of money, or, or paranormal activity. Paranormal activity is a really good example. They call it lightning in a bottle. The film was made for what, $1,500, $15,000, whatever it was? Yep. $1,500, I think, and it was bought for like $15,000. And that's, they call it lightning in a bottle. That's a one-off. But people go into this business thinking, yeah, I got my version of Paranormal Activity. Or, uh, you know, what was M. Night's first film? Uh, 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 did, uh, what was it? Six Cents. What was it? Six Cents. Six Cents, yeah. Six Cents. So everybody hopes for their version of Six Cents or Paranormal Activity. And that's why people get into this business. But it doesn't, if our numbers are right, and I, and I may be off slightly, but I think they're right. I think 44,200 movies were submitted to the Sundance Film Festival last uh-huh. year. 4,200. They accepted 120. So, you know, there's, Very cool. You know, 4,100 basically movies yeah. never made it. And they're not bad movies. They're not like moms videotaping their kids playing soccer and slapping credits at the end. I mean, they're real movies. So those... Many of those people will never get their money back. Those 4,000 movies every year, they will never get their money back. Maybe it shows at the South by Southwest, or maybe it shows in Seattle, or maybe it shows at maybe Toronto or Telluride. But you know, 99.9% of those pictures will never get the, movie, the money back. And there are movies, by the way. So that's why I say don't get involved with films because you think you're going to make a boatload of money. And don't ever ask anybody for money you can't afford it to get to lose that money. Don't go to an uncle uh, or parents and say, no, 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 this is a great idea. We're going to make a fortune. Like, let's invest in it. If they can't afford to lose the money, do not ask them to invest in that. You know, when I think about when I started in the business, I don't think that there's one independent company that it still exists. I see business plans all the time for, for, for film companies that say, we're going to make eight to ten movies a year we're going to make five movies over five years, or you know, we're going to make two movies a year. The realistic business plan is we're going to spend a lot of money in overhead and office and, and business cards and telephones. We're going to develop a couple of things, and we'll never make anything, and we're going to be out of business in three years. That's a realistic business plan, by the way. Well, very true. It's like a, it is the typical one that is happening uh, all over the place. And so, like, do you think that oh, the, the places like these film festivals, like the AFM, for example, who just finished, as well as also other f- uh, festivals like in other markets, uh, do you find that uh, they're a great useful resource in terms of keeping up with the news and the times and understanding this? Or do you feel that in some way that there's something missing with them? Well, no, I think film festivals are great. I mean, I, I, but you have to break them down into different things. So AFM isn't a film festival. It's a buyer's market that screens movies. Yes. And, uh, and Toronto and Southwest, Southwest and Sundance and Slamdance and um, Cannes, maybe in Berlin. Berlin's also a market, though, uh, are film festivals that studio executives go to to look for films and Telluride to look for films to buy. So you spend a lot of money sending people out there to look to buy films for them to distribute. There are movies that the studios are going to make, but they can still distribute it through um, Sony Classics or through New Line or through uh, uh, Screen Gems. So, and then there's festivals like Seattle and San Francisco and you know, uh, film festivals all over the country that are just nice for people. They're nice people want to go and see movies and and uh, independent films which they otherwise wouldn't be able to see. And for that, it's great. They're great. I go to film festivals all the time. I love them. I like seeing these independent pictures. Better be happier. 
very cool. And uh, it's like, uh, and uh, do you find that they have good and useful resources though as well? Like some really great, interesting learning aspects with them, or some of them, it's like you're more thinking in terms of viewer versus actual information that's passed forward, like the AFM does. Are you talking about at the film festivals? Correct. Well, a lot of the film festivals have seminars, and you know, for people like me, the seminars aren't usually useful. But, but I think that um, I think seminars are interesting. You know, I, I think the seminars at the film festivals are great. I mean, people come, they speak, and and it gives the people who pay for tickets to come to film festivals a little something different than just sitting in movies. And there's filmmakers that come, so they get to meet the filmmakers. And uh, I think if there's good seminars about the future of digital or, or you know, uh, what kind of movies make money or how movie, you know, are we making too many movies in China or is it, you know, how's Chinese market going to affect the global box office or global, you know, kinds of movies studios are making. Are they going to start making movies that have Chinese content or Chinese people or, or Chinese writers or directors? And that's just, I mentioned, it's a big topic now. So I think those seminars are great. Um, and it breaks up the film festival a little. But and you'll find those at the buyers markets like uh, Berlin and, and Toronto, New York, mm-hmm. stuff, or Tri- Tribeca, also somewhat, and, and, and Sundance. But uh, but they would be everywhere. So yeah, I think they're I think it's I think they're great. What the test? Yeah, I love them. Oh, in terms of that, it's like I really do because I find that the information is very useful for keeping that up to date. And it's like I also find that with especially the AFM. It's like I really find it a great opportunity to really hear the what is going on behind the scenes. Yeah, it is. And when I do classes, and I could, and, and the class falls when the AFM takes place, I take my kids. I take the kids to the AFM, and we sit there, and they absorb so much. It's like it's the best. They learn more in that hour and a half or two hours at the AFM than they probably will in the, you know ten weeks of a class. That's what I always say. It's yeah. like what we learn in the classroom is like an eighth. Not even like a tiny little minuscule of what you're actually going to learn out there in the real world. By the way, that's why I kind of think, I won't say film school is a waste of time, but you work on one set of a movie and you'll learn everything you need to know, uh, a lot of what you need to know that people learn in film school. Absolutely. And I was wondering if you could, I know that earlier you had spoken about piracy. What is it that we, the filmmakers, can actually do to help with the, the fight against piracy as well? That's a, it's a good question. It's a hard question because I don't really know the answer. I, I don't think there's a lot, quite frankly. I think that, um, you know, if you have a film that's distributed, it will end up online on some site. And if it's a Google-related site, you can send a takedown notice, but the takedown notice is only good for one takedown, so it could be up the next day. Um, you know, I think the best thing a filmmaker could do, quite frankly, uh, because you just can't stop it. And it's terrible, but you just can't stop it. The best thing you do is education and go and talk at schools. Go to your kid's school and talk. If you hit up 30 kids in whatever grade, in, uh, you know, what I was talking about earlier, if you get the kids when they're young enough, like six or seven or younger, you can change their perception. You can go to an 18 year old and start talking about piracy and it's going to like roll his eyes and like, you know, how you good luck to you. I say the F word on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, you can. Okay. <laughs> Some seventeen-year-old is going to go tell you to fuck off, and he's going to go and uh, pirate. You're not going to change their perception very much. But you go to seven, eight-year-olds, and just like as I said earlier, it's like non-smoking or wearing a seatbelt or recycling, or in California now, not using so much water because of the drought. You'll change your mind, and it's kids that come home and say to their parents, "Hey, you know uh, that put that in the recycling or turn the water off." Or don't smoke, it's bad for you. So it's the kids that are going to change people's perception. And even if it takes a generation, which it might, but that's okay. I remember when I was young, it could be, I could be drunk on a date mm-hmm. at night, raining, and I would not put my seatbelt on because it wasn't cool. You know, now yep. I would feel like naked in my car without a seatbelt on. Click it and take it. Yeah, <laughs> for but sure. That, but, you, but that perception changed 100%. Yeah. And same thing with you know smoking for a lot of people, but I wouldn't dream of getting my car without a seatbelt on. Drinking and driving, uh, drinking and driving, um, you know, basically campaigns, mothers against drunk driving. That changed everything. Um, uh, uh, a spousal abuse, believe it or not, it was a film 
that totally changed the conversation. Now, what's love got to do with it when it comes to spousal abuse? I'm not saying it was cool before the movie, but... All those things make a difference. You know, you go to schools and you talk about it, or you go to film festivals and talk about it, and, and people... You know, even the the, the an example I gave a little earlier, right? If you've got a cough yep. and you can't afford Robitussin, you don't go to Target and you steal it. You go, you get some, you get a lemon down the street on someone's tree and you put a little honey in a glass or whatever people do and you do that. You know, if you can't get cough, yep. you can't afford coffee medicine, you don't buy it. You don't steal it. If you can't afford a movie, go watch it. Go rent it from a library. You know, yep. spend eight bucks like a Absolutely. Do you also feel, though, that the industry is doing enough to thwart the piracy as well? Because, you know, honestly, it's like, is, should there, what is, are you feeling on that? Is, like, is it feeling like that it's coming down hard enough or not hard enough? You know, it's, it's a mixed bag, quite frankly. I mean, I think that they, they, do, they do do a lot. Um, they do do a lot, you know, but they don't have so much control in other countries. They don't really want to go, you know, they don't want to go after, you know, they don't want to have the problem that the music business had a few years ago, where very people said, oh, you're going after 14-year-olds and grandmothers, you know, when, the, when people are downloading music. Um, and it, cha- it ruined the music business, it completely changed the music business. You know, it's, it's where do musicians make their money? Not from, um, not from streaming. I, you know, what's the number that Spotify or, or Pandora pay to musicians? It's... 0.00006%. And I don't remember what the numbers are exactly, but it, the song has to play million seven times for them to receive like $100. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. So it's from, uh, it's from touring and then merchandising and then, and then music sales in that order. Merchandising, touring, and, and then music sales. So it ruined the business. And so these studios don't want to go after their core audiences and, and arrest them or find them as they do in some countries. So the studios aren't doing that. We don't really have legislation on any books now. I mean, quite frankly, Google's got a really strong lobby in Washington and they want to protect the rights of uh, things on the internet should be free. Um, you know, if you type in Ant-Man free, watch Ant-Man free, it will, you know, the top two pages will be pirate sites. You know, if Google yeah. wants it, they can easily throw that back into page five or six or seven where you're not going to see it. So that's Google. That's not the studios. It'll be interesting to see what happens when Google buys the studio, by the way. True. You know, they, they come out and they buy Warner Brothers or MGM or whoever it may be in five years from now. But I'm kind of curious how they're going to feel about piracy. You, you know what, though, about Google is there was a rumor saying that Google was going to buy the, in, the uh, NFL package from DirecTV and that they were going to do it in a way where they were going to do something to change the way that it's viewed through television. And, well, uh, it's entirely really possible. Yeah. Um, it's entirely possible, but, you know, I guess there's two issues. One is, you know, you know, how does Google change the business with buying the NFL, showing it on television, buying the studio if they do at some point. Um, but with the, going back to the piracy for a second, I think the best thing filmmakers could do is go to their kids' schools and talk about how it's taking away jobs and it does and it's taking money out of people's pockets yeah and people say you know oh well you know you get paid a lot of money you know everyone's making a lot of money in the film business that's just not true you know what happens is the unfortunate thing is people watch tmz and access hollywood and they go oh leonardo dicaprio on his 150 foot boat or george clooney's 10 million dollar wedding you know what they're not talking about is the hair and makeup people that are sharing an apartment with three people, or yeah. you know the, the the grips and the gaffers that are you know that are trying to put their kids into public school, put food on their table. Yeah, George Clooney doesn't need anybody's three dollars. That's correct. Leonardo's just fine without anybody's three dollars. But the hair and makeup and the grips and the gaffers and the writers and the three and the greensmen and the three hundred other people that work on films, they do. And it's taking jobs yeah. and money out of away from them, and it's not right. Should we answer some questions? Do people have questions? Yeah, it's, yeah, we also have the time for another question we were asked a little oh, bit yeah. earlier. Of what yeah. advice would you love to give to future filmmakers? Okay, so here's my advice for up-and-coming filmmakers. Yep. People always look to say, I really need an agent. 
how do I find an agent? I need an agent to sell my stuff. I need an agent to find me a director or to find the uh, actors. What I would say is, what I would say is, it does make it easier for an agent to give something to a director or actors. But until you find that, produce your project yourself. I could call up, you know, it may take me, I come, I don't know, you know, I want a producer for my project. I call Jerry Bruckheimer and I'll pick up my call. It's one phone call. Or if I want, um, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, um, Zack Snyder to direct something. So like, I could call Nick or I call Nick's agent, I mean, uh, Zack's agent or Zack. And, and a filmmaker out there may not have the luxury of doing that. So, but produce it yourself. I may, with somebody who's on the inside could do a one phone call, it may take you 10 phone calls. So you want Zack Snyder to direct your movie, Paul's office. His office won't take your script because it's done, so it's script. See if his assistant will take it. No, they won't take it either. Try, maybe there's a reader. Okay, they won't take it. Well, who represents him? Maybe the story department at the agency will read it. Maybe the assistant will read it. Maybe find a producer on his last movie. Maybe they could look at it or somebody in their office. Maybe it's going to take you 20 phone calls to get at this act. And it takes me one. But that's okay. That's the job. It's going to take you 20 phone calls. You just want somebody to make your job easier for you, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. And you have to deal with the actors. So you want Will Ferrell to act in your movie, and Will's agent won't read it, and Will's secretary won't read it. And, or the assistant won't read it, or no, you know, then find the story department, find somebody who worked on this last movie, find the manager, the manager's assistant, his therapist, his hair colorist, his, you know, whatever it may be. Find somebody. And if it's good, it will find its way to the top. If it's not good, it won't. But don't rely on other people to do what you need to do. Do it yourself. And then eventually, oh, Zach likes this. Well, then you have his agent helping you out. Or Will Ferrell likes you, his agent helping you out, or Danny DeVito, or, or Val Kilmer, or whoever it is. Then you start soliciting other people's help. But it's a lot of work. You get a lot of passes if you want, you know, those kind of directors and celebrities. But it's doable. It's just going to take you a little longer. So produce it yourself until you find somebody to come along and help you produce it for you. And I think that's my best advice because everybody looks for somebody else. I, I really need an agent to get my movie made. Well, well you might. But... You can do it yourself in the meantime. Yeah, it's be aggressive on the phone call. Don't just put the pedal. It's not the, I have a great script, and then just stand back and watch. Okay, yeah, here's the other thing, by the way. As you say, that <laughs> triggers something else. Don't do this. Do not do this. Do not call up an agent and say, hey, I know you have a lot of action directors, Adam. Um, you take a look at my script and see who you like it for. Uh, have somebody mind. Me. Have somebody in mind. They're asking me to do their work for them. Hey, Adam, will you read my script and see if somebody like? I, I got enough other things to do. I don't. I'm other than reading your script. But psychologically, if somebody says to me, "Hey, Adam, will you read this? I wrote this for Antoine Fuqua. Will you read it and see if he likes it? See if it's right for him." Oh, okay. I do want to find some for Antoine. He's available. But then it goes to the top of the stack. Otherwise, it's at the bottom. Otherwise, it's at the bottom of the stack because you're asking me to do the work for you. But if I, it was specific, it's just the mindset, by the way. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, Antoine. Or, or yeah, well, let me, let me read it for Antoine. That's, yeah, I'm looking for something for him. So it's just a state of mind. Anyway, it's a much smarter way to go about it. Give it to agents for a specific one rather than um, just generally just give it to them and, let, and asking the agent to do your work for you. Yeah, you don't ask, you don't get. Well, just be specific. Agents are in the transaction business. Let them do a transaction, get it off their desk. Oh, I read it. Now, by the way, the agent will know, oh, you know what? He'll think himself, it's not right for Antoine, but maybe it's right for Zach Snyder. Yeah. Now, um, I, once again, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, you were an amazing guest, and you got a lot of great insight. And I love, uh, I love chopping it up about, uh, you know, about the business and everything. And uh, what can we look forward to uh, you in the future, in the near future? <laughs> well, first, it was a pleasure for me. So thank you guys for having me. So I, I, it was great for me too. Um, I have a lot. Of, I actually have some really good scripts now that I hope are going to come together. I mean, again, I say I hope. Well, they will come together. It's just a matter of time. I'm going to. I'll be positive in my speaking. <laughs> so. Um, uh, I think what I'm going to start working on, I'll still do the piracy stuff because it's important and it's prestigious and it's important for the business, especially for the independent companies. I'll give you an example of piracy, which is interesting. Uh, Dallas Buyers Club last year. Mm -hmm. 
Dallas Buyers Club had 7 million people pay to see the movie. 7 million people paid to see it. 22 million people watched it illegally, downloaded it illegally. So at $3 each, that's $66 million of lost income. But forget about that. Take 10%. 22 million people, take 10% of that $66 million. Say, uh, some people wouldn't have watched. They watch it twice. That's still $6.6 million. And, and one of the producers, Nicholas Chardet, he mortgaged, his, as far as I think he told me, mortgaged his house to finance the movie. So even if 10% of those people, that was 22 million people, it's still $6.5 million loss on an independently financed movie. Very it's true. Incredible, the numbers. 7 million people paid to see it, 22 million people watched it illegally. But anyway, but having said that, there are a few yeah. films, that are, a few scripts that I, have, that I have that I think are quite good. Um, and uh, so, so look, look on IMDb for next year. Hopefully you'll, uh, you'll see a couple getting made. And make, it, make everybody happy. Make me happy, make the writers happy, make the directors happy. Be good for everybody. Very cool. Yeah. How can people Hopefully. get you? How can people get you in social media and the website and all that? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best thing. I mean, I'm not. I don't look at Facebook very often. So, um, but you, people send me notes on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll respond to them. You know, within a reasonable period of time. Yeah. And uh, Kente, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, you can give me a Kente F, and you can go to Indie Radio, I N D Y Radio dot org, and uh, it lists all the shows that we do. And a programming note: in ten minutes, uh, that we have the Infectious Geek Show that will be coming up. Also, Adam, can we have you come back for us again? Yeah, I'd love to. This is great. No, thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Definitely for sure, because uh, we're coming up in the new year. And you can uh, also get me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Visipedia. Oh, gosh. Like I've uh, said a million times, if you if you can't find me, you're not stalking me hard enough. <laughs> I'm going to start stalking you. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Especially on the What Did She Say page. <laughs> And uh, we hope that you all enjoyed, and hopefully we'll talk to you next week. And our guest coming up for next week is Todd Berger, and followed by Steve Emmonson. Good guests.